Get a whole new perspective on Ram 1500 and Ram Heavy Duty. Motor Trend's back-to-back truck of the year at the Ram Start Something New sales event. Now during Owner Appreciation Month, financing at $11,250 in total values on the 2019 Ram 1500 Classic Bighorn Crew Cab. Hurry in for great deals during the Ram Start Something New sales event. Financing for well-qualified buyers through Chrysler Capital. Not all buyers will qualify. Package values based on combined value of package items. Residency restrictions apply. Take delivery from dealer stock by 2 3 Welcome to the Undisclosed Addendum. Today we're talking about episode six in our current series, The State versus Greg Lance. That episode is called A Wanted Man, and if you haven't heard it yet, go back and listen. We'll be right here waiting for you when you get back. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, host of the True Crime Review podcast, Crime Writers On, and one of the audio editors for Undisclosed. And with us today is Rabia Chaudhry. She's the New York Times bestselling author of a non-story and a super warrior for justice on all fronts. Hello again, Rabia. Hey, Rebecca. Also with us is somebody very close to my heart, Toby Ball. He's the author of the critically acclaimed city trilogy of dystopian noir novels, and you can hear him on a little weekly podcast called Crime Writers On. Plus, he's the host of our Patreon-exclusive book club podcast called The Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club, and you can just think about that title all day now if you want. Hello, Toby. Hey, Rebecca. It's nice to talk to you in another venue, Toby. How are you? I know. It's weird. Good. (laughs) Good. I'm psyched for this. I'm psyched for it, too. Well, first, let's do a quick episode six synopsis so that folks who may have listened a couple days ago can be reminded of what we're talking about. Episode six chronicles the major investigative events that took place between the murders of Victor and Alec Lesnikow on August 6th, 1998, and Greg Lance's arrest on April 5th, 1999. The investigators use a variety of tactics to find and collect evidence, including getting people to secretly record conversations and wear microphones, hoping someone close to Greg, like Kay, will have something incriminating to offer. While nothing comes of all these clandestine operations, they do catch a number of breaks. First, they hear from Sherry Wilkins, an acquaintance of Greg Lance and the new manager of the Ford Mobile Home Park, who has a lot of suspicious information about Greg, including that he's been burning documents and is still carrying on an affair with an old girlfriend. Then they learn that one of Greg's housemates and employees, Dave Anderson, owns a red car that matches the description of the vehicle Joe Brown saw at the Heron Farm on the day he discovered the gas cans there. As if that weren't enough, Sherry Wilkins gives them a murderous poem allegedly written by Dave that seems to describe a killer shooting his victim. Both of these things combined raise suspicions about Dave, but further connect Greg to the crime when they learn that he was actually driving Dave's car on the day Joe Brown saw it. Finally, they learn that Greg rented a small storage unit in the week of the murders and acted highly suspicious, allegedly, to the storage facility manager as he was doing it. The printout records for the storage unit show Greg accessed the unit before and after the crime and gave them more information about his movements in that critical time. Now, the episode opens, Rabia, with remarks by the prosecutor during opening statements at the trial about Greg fleeing to Arizona as a sign of his guilt. 
But as you explain and as we hear for ourselves, the state knew all along that Greg would be traveling to Arizona for work. What is the deal with that? Uh, How can the state just make a patently false statement in their opening and closing remarks? Are there parameters around that? Can prosecutors just basically lie during these statements? Yeah, I mean, like, so the thing is, look, I'm not a trial attorney. I've never, you know, um, litigated outside of immigration court, which is a very different format. Um, But generally speaking, you know, opening statements are meant for the prosecutor and the defense to kind of lay out kind of like, you know, their version of the facts of the case, but not normally make arguments. So they should have less leeway. I mean, in closing arguments, you will hear a lot more because in closing arguments, you're arguing. You can you can draw conclusions, you can make more leaps, and you can embellish more. Um, but having said that, generally speaking, no. I mean, like, you should not be completely making things up. The problem is, for a defense attorney, I think, I'm not sure if during opening statements, if it's even, and this is where we need Colin Miller, but... I know during during closing arguments, um, opposing counsel can make objections, mm-hmm. you know, which are not done often, as far as I know, because you know it can be annoying to a jury because they'll they'll be like the jury will be like, well, you'll get your turn, which is the other part of this. You can you can address those things than when you're giving your opening statement or your closing arguments and during the trial. So you know, if the prosecutor said this during the opening statement. And there's an opportunity during trial to correct that record, then that's probably when it's best for the defense to do it. Can you prevent them from throwing stuff in there like that? No, not really. Toby, doesn't this seem to be like a theme in cases that have been covered in things that we've talked about on our show? Just prosecutors just saying stuff in opening and closings that just doesn't match either the facts presented at trial or the actual evidence or even what the jury has necessarily heard. I mean, you're an experienced juror. You've sat on two trials. The listeners to our podcast know. What do you think about that? Yeah, well, I was thinking when I was listening to Rabia, you know, I think in some ways they almost did the defense a favor by previewing a little piece of BS that they were going to throw in, uh, which gives them time to, you know, figure out a way to rebut it when they're pulling up... um, their own witnesses or whatever. Um, in that way, it doesn't seem to me as egregious as dropping it into uh, your final argument and then not giving uh, the defense a chance to to rebut it uh, with any kind of evidence. But yeah, I mean, I do think, and we've talked about this before on Crime Writers On, certainly, is that this sort of uh, winner-take-all, you know, it's not for prosecutors. And I don't know, whether here it's uh, whether prosecutors are elected or not, but uh, especially where they are elected, you know, it's the point is to get the conviction rather than to find who actually did it. Mm. Um, and so I think that's, you know, and I, especially in a place like Tennessee, which I think it's pretty conservative uh, around justice issues, that it doesn't surprise me a whole lot to see that, that the government wants to put their finger on the scale a little bit. Mm. Can I, so let me add two things to that. Um, first, you know, I, when I started doing public speaking a long time ago, 10, 15 years ago, you know, I, I watched, I read all this stuff about like how to do it effectively and <laughs> videos and this and that. And one thing you hear over and over again, I think it's true is that, you know, for, for most people, they, they remember the beginning and the, the end mm-hmm. of a talk, right. Or even maybe a presentation like this. And the middle is kind of like all fuzzy. And I think that that might, it might even happen, for juries. So like, you know, the opening statements, I think are really powerful and closing arguments are really powerful and they might be more powerful than all the stuff that gets presented in the middle, which might be over the course of days or weeks. But, you know, so I think 
there might be some undue influence of those, you know, those two things, how it's bookended the whole case. And the second thing is this, there's also undue influence uh, in terms of how the jury privileging what the prosecutor has to say versus what the defense counsel has to say. Right. You know, I mean, like, we already think there's no way to erase from the minds of a jury. I don't care how well you've ordeer them, uh, the idea that this guy wouldn't have been arrested if there wasn't some threshold, right? A level of guilt or evidence or something against them. And of course, he's going to defend against it as best he can, but they will always believe. Most people will believe a prosecutor over a defense attorney. Yeah. And so even if a, if a defense counsel is able to say, well, you know, if they're really effective and they're able to show it like through testimony, because once again, you have to remember, um, it's, this is not evidence, closing arguments, or the, these are not evidence. It's not considered part of the evidentiary record, but if an attorney is good enough and they're able to show through presentation, the evidence in the course of the actual trial through testimony or other kinds of evidence, um, that what the prosecutor said is false. It also, it's, you know, you don't, you don't get to stand up in trial and you can show the evidence, but it's hard to then, I don't know if, if a criminal defense attorney can say, Hey, do you remember when the prosecutor said X, Y, Z? And that wasn't true. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe that would be something that they have to do at the end. Yeah. I was just wondering if, if that kind of thing, like, a small lie like that, which, you know, in the grand scheme of things, probably isn't going to determine guilt or innocence that a good defense lawyer, you would think, would be able to use that to kind of impeach the credibility of the prosecution and be like, look, if he's willing to BS you on something simple like this and it's as easy to check as this as I just, you know, got this guy who said, yeah, I invited him to come out here. Um, and you knew about it like that to me would seem to be a, a real opening for a defense attorney. The prosecutor's not on trial. Right. And so you can't really impeach the prosecutor as a problem, right? Um, but you can, can't you impeach his arguments? Can't, can't you say, you know, you know, look, he's, you know, he's trying to draw a whole bunch of inferences here and we can show you that, you know, on, on stuff that, that's very, very easy to check mm-hmm. that he's, you know, again, he's putting his finger on the scale. Like he knows this isn't right and he's saying it. Um, again, I don't know. I don't know the rules about you know closing arguments and stuff, but um, it's like none. I think <laughs> they yeah, they want because I think that 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 was certainly like I was actually on a trial where the where the defense attorney was basically just like you know it's the man. The man's trying to put this guy away, and he was he's like you know these cops had to account for their time, and then you know they're in cahoots with the DA, and the DA is like supporting them because they're all a big brotherhood and they're going to put this guy away basically because these guys are screwing around and don't want to get in trouble. Hmm. And uh, that ended up being, it was a winning argument, but there, you know, like a lot of these trials, there's a whole lot of other stuff going on, particularly this is in DC and particularly around race and around the relationship of the African American community with the police at that time, which was the mid nineties. So there's a lot of other things going on, but that was what that, you know, fairly young defense attorney, that was his strategy. And, you know, this guy got acquitted, who, in my, to my mind, you know, I, it seemed like he was fairly clearly guilty. But in the end, it, <laughs> you know, it didn't seem like it was worth going to the mat on it. Right. Because uh, it was actually a pretty, a pretty small crime. And it was like people weren't even clear about why it was being prosecuted. For the last few months, every time I leave my house to go work out at the gym, which is about four to five times a week, I grab a bottle of water, my headphones, 
and a Perfect Bar. Perfect Bars are made by Perfect Snacks, and they are a line of fresh-from-the-fridge protein bars that are made with freshly ground nut butter, have up to 17 grams of whole food protein, and 20 superfoods, and they're all combined to create this delicious cookie dough-like texture that is just as nutritious as it is delicious. Now look, for years I've been eating protein bars or grabbing this kind of snack or that kind of snack to help fuel me through these kinds of things, but all of it, you know, kind of, you, you get kind of tired of it. It all tastes like cardboard after a while but not perfect snacks, not these perfect bars, because they have flavors like dark chocolate peanut butter, almond butter, coconut peanut butter. You don't have to sacrifice taste for health, because here's the thing, they actually taste homemade. They taste like you made them. They taste so fresh because they are fresh. They come right out of the fridge. All perfect snack products are first of its kind, and they're kept refrigerated for optimal texture and taste but they do stay fresh for up to one week out of the fridge. They're perfect to take on the go, wherever you need a snack and to help avoid any meltdowns. That could be a meltdown that you're gonna have or one of your kids. But anyway, I almost always have perfect bars in my fridge or a couple of them in my car. And in addition to tasting good, these bars will help you feel good because they're non-GMO, project verified, gluten-free, soy-free, kosher, low GI, and made in the USA. Right now, Perfect Bar is offering you 15% off your online order. Just go to perf.bar slash undisclosed. Once again, that's perf.bar slash undisclosed. And check out my favorite, which is the coconut flavor. Shop their refrigerated snacks at perf.bar slash undisclosed today to get 15% off your order. Make your day a little more perfect at perf.bar slash undisclosed. I'm certain that defense attorneys across America don't listen to the undisclosed addendum to get like advice on how to do these things. <laughs> but I, I was I was on a jury on a, in a criminal trial in the last year or so, and the defense attorney gave the closing statement and said, "Listen, uh, the prosecutor's not a bad guy. Uh, he just is working with what he's got and had to put a story together to sell you and." You know, mm. the witnesses said this and they said this and they said this, which clearly shows there are a lot of problems with that story. And, you know, it's his job to take what the police give him and get you to say this woman's guilty. But, you know, this witness, this witness and this witness would say that she's not. And it's really up to you. And and he basically like poked a bunch of holes that way. And it was very effective because I think I mean, I was already sort of on the not guilty side, but we went in the room and I was the foreman and I was like anybody we want to just do a straw poll and everybody was not. So it was very quick, but like it was very effective. Robbie, can you remind me and I'm sorry for forgetting this detail, but wasn't the mistrial in Idnan's case around somebody accusing somebody of being a liar, one of the lawyers of lying uh, in the courtroom? Oh, the judge accused Christina Gutierrez of lying. Right. The judge did. And, and and the jury heard him. Right. Okay. All right. <laughs> so she called for a she called, she called for a mistrial. But the lie the lie was not it was like an off the record thing. So it was during it wasn't during the presentation of any witnesses or anything like that. I believe I think there there was a discussion ongoing between Gutierrez and the prosecutor about like the evidence that what she had gotten during discovery. Mm -hmm. And, and because earlier she had said she had gotten some piece of evidence during discovery. And then later she said she didn't. And the judge was like, well, you said you got it. And she was like, no, I didn't say that. And he's like, well, you did. And then he called her a liar. Mm. And she had said she got it. So I don't know what happened, but she was having some lapses there. And um, if the jury hadn't heard it, it might've been okay, but probably even then it would have been grounds for a mistrial. Right. Right. Uh, Toby, what did you think of this detail that uh, I know that you've listened to the whole series, you know, about Greg and his uh, 
ladies' man predilections. Yep. What do you think about the fact that he and Becky got married just three days after the murder, surprising everybody who knew them? Uh, that seems super shady. <laughs> I mean, even if it's not like indicative of guilt, it's just like you got to think that stuff through a little bit better, I mm. think. Mm. You know, why? Wh- <laughs> it's just just the timing is is so awkward. Um, but what if he didn't commit the murders? Then is it then is it still shady? You know what, yeah, I, you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, you know, yeah, but it's like, you know, I think it's similar to like. Would you then like. Three days after the murder, like dig a big pit in your backyard and start burning clothes or something. <laughs> I mean, it's it's just like one of those things that makes you look guilty. Right. And people will be like, why not just wait a freaking month? You right. Know? You know, what is it? Is are things going to go south and you're not going to get married if you wait a little bit? It's just it's a bad decision. Um, you know, again, what what does it mean in the grand scheme of things? Probably not much, but uh, I wouldn't have advised him to do it. Yeah. Uh, Robbie, you did you talk to Greg about the fact that he had this quick wedding? Yeah. yeah. What did he have to say about it? A number of times because I thought it was super shady. Um, <laughs> I and, appreciate you your know. candor around that, by the way. I really do. No, I do. I mean, like it, it, it gives you pause. Now, I know a lot more than obviously all the listeners know about and, and you guys know about the story. And I, I know why, though, I, I consider it, like I said, not a bright move. Um, but then so I'll tell you this. The first couple of times we talked about this and Greg was like, look, I just realized that, you know, shit could go downhill anytime. And like, you never know when you're going to lose something. And I was she was like the love of my life. And I was like, why don't I just do this? What am I waiting for? I was just like. I was really skeptical um, because I thought, well, uh, come on. And I actually said, I said, come on, let's let's be honest here. I mean, really, that was it. Now, I can't say for sure that part of the calculation wasn't on his end. Oh, my God, what if I am getting screwed for this murder and, you know, maybe they'll pressure her into testifying again or something. I don't know. That could have been. But I will say this. Um, his marriage to his first wife was also it pretty much exactly the same. Mm. Nobody knew. They literally just had a conversation. I mean, they just, and I spoke to his first wife. Um, and it was like two hours later, they were married, like literally two hours. later. They were married. And so I, I guess it's just a, you know, kind of how he operated. It was really bad timing, I would say. But I also say this, you know, I am, um, it's interesting because, you know, people from my part of the world, um, you know, Pakistani boys and girls, you know, especially ones who've been raised in the United States, there's a lot of, this is, I'm going a little bit off topic, but it might be interesting for you to hear about this. But, um, like when, when a lot of immigrant children are raised in the United States and then it comes time for them to think about like, you know, future partners are getting married. A lot of times the elders will want, older people would want to introduce them to people from back home. You know what I mean? Like, oh, I had a friend who has a son back home with this and that. And there's always, I mean, I've heard this so many times, there's always this conversation of, what if that person just wants to marry me to get a green card, right? Or to get to come to the United States. And that's always a possibility, but I've always like my response in that situation has been like, that could be something that they think is a benefit to it, but it doesn't mean that that's not mutually exclusive from, from them actually wanting to like really be with you or really loving you or something like that. And, you know, and I think that's true here too. I think they could have really been in love and really wanted to be together. And they were, they were together for quite a while afterwards. Um, but Anne also thought, well, this could help us out. <laughs> you yeah. know, this could help me out. Yeah. 
Well, it definitely struck me as odd. I mean, especially given that, I mean, listen, I'm not judging anybody's like relationships. And obviously these guys were more comfortable with, you know, uh, multiple partners and stuff than I might be in my relationship. But it didn't really seem like, you know, all things being equal, like either one of them were like in the marrying mood <laughs> like around this period of time in their lives. You know what I mean? Um, so that that, you know, definitely struck me as a little bit odd, but I'm really glad that you asked him about it. That's that's good. I just want to talk a little bit about these recorded phone calls. You have here in the notes that you wrote for me that Tennessee is a single party consent state. So I'm assuming there was a warrant for these recorded phone calls, right? No, they didn't need one. What? They didn't need one. They, you do not, because it's a single party consent state. Oh, so only one person needs to know that they're recording. As right. long as the police can convince that one, like, let's say Rocky, you know, can you go wear a wire and talk to Becky? Like, they convince one person, and that one person has given their consent. They don't need to then. Right. Um, right. Yeah. So the person holding the microphone secretly can just, can be the person in the know. Right. Um. So they tried this with a lot of people and a lot of different recordings, and they didn't get much, Um. except... There was that one conversation with Greg and his friend, which I believe we heard about uh, earlier, which was like, hey, man, you know that I just don't want to be involved in whatever is going on. And Greg was like, yeah, yeah, I get it. And that's really the closest thing they ever got to anything with these recordings, right? Yep, that's right. Okay. So we have transcripts of the conversations, but not actually the recordings. Toby, don't you think that makes a difference between reading and listening when you're talking about, you know, a recorded phone call or a recorded interview, the transcript versus the actual hearing of it? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. You can't tell when people pause, where, where their accents are placed on things. You know, certainly sarcasm doesn't come across in a transcript. And I do think that these like semi-cryptic, like sort of blow off conversations, like the one you were just describing where they're talking it was like hey man I don't I don't I don't want to be involved in this yeah 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 where it, it seems to me like that's the kind of conversation where you know Greg could be like in the middle of doing something else or just like I don't even know what this guy's talking about but I'm just going to say yeah sure whatever like that's the kind of stuff that I think comes across when you can listen to a recording where if you just see the words on a piece of paper it's like huh well you know he obviously knows that something's going on if he's saying that so I do think that's that's important. I also think it's like this whole thing about trying to, uh, you know, not, I guess, legally, but in reality, entrap somebody through a phone call that you're recording just seems to me like coming from a place of weakness mm. um, in that if you are pretty confident in your case, like, I don't know why you'd have to sort of create evidence, even though you're not creating it in a way that's you know, like you're not, you don't have a drop gun or something, but you're, you're trying to add to what you've got. And so that, that seems to me that it sort of impeaches sort of the confidence that I would have in uh, the prosecution's case. If they're kind of resorting to do that, I think that means they don't have enough. They don't think they have enough sort of physical evidence to get the result they want. Do you agree with that, Rabia? Yeah, I think, especially, you know, these recordings were taking place, a lot of them were like in October or November. So it's a couple of months or two to three months after the murders. They've already taken Greg's like, you know, all the stuff that they have, like forensic stuff um, they could collect from his body and his house and stuff like that. To me, it just shows they're, they're looking for evidence. And if they had good evidence already, they would not need to look for more evidence is the way I would 
look at it. Um, now, I mean, in terms of them not really getting anything from Greg, either he's like super, super savvy, right? But it wasn't just Greg, right? You had this guy, Keith, secretly recording his conversation with, with his, you know, soon to be divorced wife, Kay. That didn't work out. Rocky shows up wearing a wire that Becky could clearly see. <laughs> that didn't work out. I mean, it, it's kind of, um, they, they were just trying to get stuff from anybody close to Greg too, and, and none of it actually panned out. So, so Greg wasn't the only person who like left town, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> didn't Keith leave town or or Dave leave? Like everybody seemed to be leaving town. Why was his? Yeah. I meant to ask this earlier. Why was his leaving town the only thing that was kind of in question when all these other people seemed to have also left town? You know, for less good reason than he obviously had. Yeah, I mean, Greg left town earlier on, I mean, Greg was always the prime suspect because mm. he was, you know, the prime litigant against the victims. I yeah. mean, that's how the police were looking at this. So they were thinking Greg is definitely, you know, involved or and responsible. And then maybe somebody helped him. And that's how they're, the police are looking at this case. They're trying to figure out who that person is that helped him. That's why Keith was uh, initially a suspect. Um, and then he fails a polygraph, which didn't help him. They had his car for months, putting a lot of pressure on him. But then they thought, well, maybe it was Dave. They thought it was maybe, Aaron. I mean, they really thought it was a lot of people. And actually, uh, in next week's episode, when we talk about, um, the evidence that they present at trial, we'll go over, um, how many different people connected to Greg, like they ran some of the forensics, um, tried to match them too. So they were just looking for anybody. Greg plus one was mm. their theory. Well, speaking of the plus one, we need to talk about Dave's murder poem. Toby? Is it a poem? <laughs> you're an acclaimed author. Uh, what the holy hell was that uh, piece of writing? And, you know, do you think that if someone has a piece of writing like that in their house, like, a you know, some sort of like scribblings in a notebook coming up with some topic like murder, does that necessarily point to them being involved in a crime? Or is that the kind of thing that someone who just can't help but write uh, likes to write about? What do you think? <laughs> uh, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll go on these backwards. And the first one is, it definitely does not indicate anything. And I think that's been, that kind of thing has been abused so much. Um, I think there's actually something going on right now about a rapper whose rap lyrics are being used against him in a trial which seems ludicrous. Uh, but I think, like, isn't that part of what happened with Damien Eccles as well? Is mm. that not that he was writing about murder, but he was writing about stuff that people found uh, sort of objectionable and indicative of sort of, you know, moral unworthiness or whatever. Um, so I think that that's, that's super dangerous, I think. Um, and especially, you know, I, I don't want people going and looking at my books for indications that I'm like committing <laughs> <laughs> committing graft or bombing places or whatever. Um, so that's one thing. The second thing is, you know, I was thinking Colin at one point says he's talking about, he says whether it's, uh, I'm paraphrasing, he says basically whether it's prose or poetry is up for debate. And I think he meant like you had a choice between the two, but I think the actual question is, does it really qualify as either one of those? <laughs> and and it is kind of, I mean, a little bit of it is, you know, what I thought was interesting about it is it does kind of, I don't know, it's just, it's a little bit of a, a window on the way he views the world, I guess, because it's really odd, you know? And it's like this thing about these heroes like and then there weren't any more heroes and and the heroes are in opposition to him and then about how he like turns invisible 
like all, all that stuff is like kind of weird and interesting, I think. But I, you know, the idea that it's indicative that he might have actually killed somebody uh, is like a stretch that I think is is dangerous to have that be kind of a a factor in any kind of uh, determination of guilt or innocence. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, Robbie, Dave was in the National Guard as well, right? Yeah. So these are guys who are sort of like, you know, they have this, you know, quasi-routine military background. They handle firearms. They're comfortable with, you know, the sort of modeling of, like, heroism, and they probably do these exercises where they're, like, you know, in situations and training and for operations and stuff. It felt kind of like a, a fantasy version of some of that to me. Um, and it also just seemed like something that actually, like, if I had participated in a murder and been helpful and been there when it happened, like, I don't think I would have written a poem about it in a notebook in my house. Like, you, like we're supposed to believe that Greg, you know, got married in order to conceal the crime, but that this other dude, like, wrote something artistic about it. I don't know. Robbie, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I wanted to include this this thing as, you know, that, that this happened as part of the narrative because it was part of the narrative, as part of the investigation, and it's kind of guiding the police's investigation. It's important to know that Dave was not charged with anything in connection to this. He does not, you know, get wrapped up in this as an accomplice because of this poem, the poem is, or whatever you want to call this thing, it's not presented as evidence. But I want... Uh, and it's interesting. A lot of the um, a lot of the questions that we've gotten this week are going to point to this. That it just shows how the police are building a case, and to them, almost everything is pointing to Greg, right? And including this poem. So, yeah, I mean, certainly this kind of stuff has been used at trial uh, before uh, against folks. I mean, like you know, hello, Adnan's case, the I will kill note or whatever. Oh, um, right. Remember that? Yep. Um, and speaking of which, by the way, I, I wanted to mention um, that that last question that you posed to Toby about having the audio versus having a transcript. I mean, that was the whole tap, tap, tap business with Jay. Right. Right. We did not know that the taps are happening until Susan listened to the audio. And that's the problem with transcripts is they're missing so much. And the truth is this, even the transcripts are coming to us from the police. Like it, it's not like the defense is getting the tape and then having it transcribed. It's coming from the police. And at this point, depending on who's handling that evidence, I don't know if I fully trust that everything's been transcribed perfectly um, and not been embellished or something been edited. Like I just, I don't, like I would want the actual audio, but anyway, yeah, I mean, so it, it's not necessarily that this poem is used as evidence. I'm just, I wanted to show in this, um, episode what was happening during the investigation in that eight months that led the police to then charge him. Hmm. Well, investigators did tell Greg's friends and acquaintances that they had solid evidence of his guilt, his fingerprints on the gun, for instance. Uh, you know, I do think we know that police are allowed to lie uh, to people they're interviewing. That's like something that's on the books. They're allowed to do it. Yeah. How do we feel about that? I know that I am very much not comfortable with it. I know that uh, there are probably some very good, well-meaning investigators who use it judiciously and for good, but we also know there are plenty of investigators who don't. Um, and it's not this way in every justice system around the world. Some of the you know most highly regarded justice systems around the world, the cops are not allowed to lie to people they have in, in custody. What do you think about this, Rabia? 
I mean, you know, in, in this case, it wasn't even necessarily to people who were in custody. It was just, you know, people that knew Greg. Um, you know, I think when police do that, what they're thinking is that they're they're hoping to coax people who might not otherwise be willing to say something or might know something, but they don't realize that maybe it's it was it's suspicious. You know, that might be helpful, that it, this might help jog some stuff um, for them. But otherwise, I mean, I think it's kind of a shady tactic because, you know, we talked about this last week when like, you know, after the fact, you if you're told something, then your perception of things that have happened in the past is going to be colored then by that, what you're being presented as a fact, right? If they're saying, because they told witnesses that Greg's fingerprints were all all over the weapon. I mean, that's kind of open and shut, (laughs) right? Um, they told Adnan's classmates his DNA was found, you know, at the crime scene um, and his body is open shut. So then, yeah, it does definitely color the perception of. And it's interesting. The um, So I, I think that's what happened, like, with Sherry. You know, that handwritten statement she wrote the first time they went to see her, Sherry Wilkins, who was the um, manager of the, the park. It's it's almost like they said to her, can you write down everything suspicious? Right. And it wasn't like a it, – it was just a bunch of random things, like, in one – one document. Um, and she did handwrite it. It is in her handwriting, but I feel like she was prompted by the police saying, we know it's him. We've got his fingerprints. Now, can you just write everything that seems suspicious about him that he's been doing? And maybe it's, you know, a lot of it, you know, they can't present as evidence in court, but it can help them maybe try to piece the puzzle together a little more. Right. And Toby, I definitely thought that that might be the case with the storage unit lady. Like, she was marking all of these things as suspicious. You know, first he said he wasn't employed, and then he said he was self-employed. And then he was carrying around a great deal of cash, which was very suspicious. It sounds to me like the statements of somebody who's been told, like, we know this guy did it. Tell us about your interaction with him at the storage unit. What did you think about that? Yeah, that all seemed like much ado about nothing in that I think particularly people who are self-employed sometimes, when, when are like, are you employed? And they think about it as... You know, do you have an employer? Yeah. Do I do I work for somebody? And you say no. And then it's like, well, how are you going to pay for this? Well, I'm self-employed. Exactly. So exactly. So that doesn't seem like a big deal. And it seems like, you know, the kind of stuff that he does, like being paid in cash, like under the table, seems like that would be a pretty regular occurrence. So that doesn't seem like a big issue to me. Um, the whole thing about lying uh, or being allowed to lie, I think like a lot of like different pol- police things and I think just kind of stuff in general is you know you can make the argument for it uh, being used responsibly but the problem is that it inevitably gets used unresponsibly Mm. and so you have to kind of weigh the damage that it's going to do and you know just uh, this morning there's that I don't know if you guys saw that you know the law firm or whatever it is consulting firm that came up with the read technique of uh, police interrogations is suing the Ava DuVernay's um, when they see us, yeah. I guess for you know slander or whatever. But it's you know I I think it's the same thing. It's it's like well you know on paper these techniques probably seem like legitimate because you're not like beating anybody up or torturing them or you know doing any of these other things. Like all the stuff is like in and of, of itself legal. But it's when it's not, you know, when it when it's used inappropriately or in combinations of things that then, you know, you're more likely to get, 
you know, false confessions. Mm. Um, and especially with, with, you know, I, I guess younger and, you know, sort of more naive people who aren't able to interpret what's going on as, as potentially a lie or a manipulation. Because uh, I could, you know, if you're like 13 or 14 and somebody says, we got your fingerprints, you're like, oh, shit. Yeah. Like, how did that happen? But I'm screwed. Right. You know? Right. Oh, that happens all the time when they'll tell one co-defendant that, oh, the other one already, like, your, co- your whatever co-conspirator has already confessed. He's told, so you may as well. But, you know, the other thing I, I've noticed in these cases when they do that is that, or maybe what it's what bothers me about it is that it just seems like, and I'm not a you know, I'm not a detective. I, I have never done this kind of work, but I, it almost seems like working backwards to me. Once again, what's happening is they've decided this person did it. Now they're looking for evidence to back up their theory of the case, right? They're not just interviewing lots of people and gathering all the evidence and then deciding. They are, they've already decided Greg did it. So they're going to go to people and say, Greg did it. They're going to lie. We have evidence that he did it. Um, so now tell us what you know. And to mm-hmm. me, that that's just like a classic. That's how tunnel vision works, right? They're not doing a broad investigation. They're not just collecting all the information they can. They, they could have gone to these witnesses and say, you know, can, can you tell us anything you think was suspicious from anybody you know? Like, you know, or, or Greg is connected. They could have just been honest. Greg is was a litigant in, in this case against the victims. And so we are looking into him as a suspect. Is there anything you can share with us that might be? you know, useful to this investigation instead right. of saying we, you know, we nailed him. Now, what do you, what do you have on us? Um, so I don't know. It always, it always seems to me it's always done like with the non, it was, they arrested him first. Then they went to the school and told all the kids, uh, you know, we got him. And now what do you have to tell us? And so it, it just seems like it's always done backwards. I don't right. know. Well, I, I have a question, Rabia, for you. Did you ask Greg you know, why he had Dave's car and why he rented that other storage unit. Did you guys talk about that at all? Oh, we've talked about it all and everybody will find out when we get there. (laughs) But but can I just point out something that like just struck me about that whole thing? Mm -hmm. Um, First off, we already know that the neighbor's recollections about what he may have seen or not seen at that farm next door are suspect because of the distance, because of, you know, all that stuff. Second, if Greg is storing gas cans and other shit at the farm, why would he need a storage unit to also store stuff? I mean, that just doesn't make sense to me. Like, what? which is it? I mean, he is the assumption that he used the storage unit and then was like, I, I mean, I, I guess there's just too almost too much of like of staging areas, storage places, like car swapping. It, it doesn't really add up to a clear, linear story and yet it's just another thing to throw on the pile am i wrong that those two things they're not necessarily contradictory but they also don't tell a complete story yeah i mean i i that's the thing it's that's and that's why i posed some of those questions towards the end of the episode is like what i think the state themselves was trying to figure it out and that's why for a while they didn't charge him they were just like what actually happened now they're they're looking at all of this activity as highly suspicious and so they're trying to piece together what that means in terms of the, the narrative of what he did that day. Um, the storage unit to them just looks really suspicious because of the timing, right? He he rented it a couple days before the murder, abandoned it apparently a couple days after the murder. What was he storing there? Mm. Gosh, I mean, like, you know, maybe there was something. What was he doing? But at the same time, if you take a step back and look at this, you know, this guy's going to work every day. He's going to National Guard on the weekends. In, in the evening, you know, his evenings are pretty... Most people know what he's doing in the evenings because you've got Keith and Becky and like all these people at, you know, who, who Mike Heron, who's like almost every single day we were working on his, at his place trying to fix it up. 
like, did he need to do all that to commit this crime is the question. And it just seems like given his schedule, it would have been kind of burdensome to be adding all these extra things to it. But it is, again, because it's suspicious, um, it's an important part of the story. And it's definitely something that um, Greg and I have spoken about. And we will we'll get to that when we get to that. Maybe he was hiding his like secret proposal gear for Becky. I was about to say, storage. it's wedding stuff. It's all wedding stuff. Uh, as long as it wasn't another woman back there, man. These guys, <laughs> let me just say something. I got to say, I, I do want to say this though. I, I don't know if it's just, I mean, I don't want to say like it's a particular like group of people are like this or this community's like this or are you talking about the lady it, swapping is that what you're talking about the late not to, and, the, and the man swapping man i mean swapping. it's not it's they're all everybody's like almost everybody that i've talked to in connection with this case kind of is the same way i mean like it's and i don't know if it's just a thing um and i you know as disturbed as as, as i was about hearing about it with greg i was like oh this is just like this is like you know I mean, and even Kay, Keith's, you know, girlfriend who then became his wife, um, you know, she, she even told me that, you know, oh, yeah, I mean, there were times when I I figured I knew Kay, Keith was sleeping around, but, you know, or the, I mean, like, it's just, it was, it, it was just how they were. Yeah. High, a high level of comfort with it in a way that is interesting for sure. Maybe it's, um maybe it's regional. Who knows? I remember in the Joey Watkins case, there was a lot of like this person used to date this person who also used to date this person who also dated this yeah. other person kind of thing. I remember that being... Everybody dated everybody. Exactly. Yeah, that's I think that's what happens well, least, when it's like eight people that you know, right? Yeah, it's super, it's super small towns. I mean, the dating pool is not huge. <laughs> yes. But why But why you would continue to... Uh, I don't think it's a regional thing to have like mass inf- infidelity. No. That hasn't been my impression. Yeah, yeah. Well, I do want to get to some listener questions because we have a few of them this week. Um, somebody asked, and I I don't want to get the name wrong, but it looks like LMG. Uh, I wonder why we haven't heard more about the renters on Mike Heron's farm. Couldn't the red car be theirs? Also, wouldn't they be the ones doing the shooting, burning, and own the gas cans? Maybe I've missed something. Thanks, L. Robbie, thoughts? Yeah, I mean, that is absolutely what Mike Heron believes. <laughs> Mike himself is like, you know, First of all, the burning stuff, it just seems like that's how everybody disposed of the trash. You know, um, I remember there was one time when Mike said to me that he's like, I was always burning. That's just how you dispose of stuff. And that is like, everybody's got a burn barrel. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. The first time I ever heard a burn barrel was on making a murder. I didn't know what that was. But apparently in certain parts, everybody has a burn barrel. And so that's what Mike said to me. He said, you know, that, you know, not and beyond the guy, the renter who's on the property, a lot of people went out and did shooting on his farm. Uh, he He's named a lot of different people he knows, friends, because he had, like, lots of acres, and it was just something they did. I mean, Mike himself would, ho- you know, have friends over, and they'd go shooting, and it was just something they did. So in terms of um, what kind of car the that renter had, we actually are not sure. We don't know. Hmm. So. Toby, yes, yeah, I heard you in the affirmative there. We, we can attest, living in a rural place, that uh, people do burn shit all the time. Don't do they not? Yeah, and I've been to, I've spent a lot of time in the rural south, and yeah, just people have burn piles or stuff burning. Yep. I mean, it's just 
and shooting, by the way. I live in a neighborhood where, you know, every evening <laughs> there's like somebody with an earshot of my house. It sounds like there's a little war going on. I think it's a couple miles away, but the sound does travel quite a bit. And it's just not an uncommon sound in a rural place. It's not even something that I would like even consider calling the cops about at this point, having lived here for so long. And I think that you bring up a good point because the question is, did Joe and Judy really hear it coming from Mike's farm? Right. Because Joe Joe goes there that evening and he finds absolutely nothing. Right. It could have been coming from five miles beyond that. It could have been because the sound does travel quite a bit, especially in the... And again, you, you're inside, you hear shots. I mean, like, I certainly don't hear, like during hunting season, mm. like you hear shots all the time. And it's like, I'm not trying to identify like what direction they came from. Right. It's just like, oh, there's some gunshots. Right. You just want to make sure that they don't sound super close. That's always my Right. Mind. There's no like windows breaking or anything <laughs> in your house. Exactly. Uh, so Paul Bacon asks, three witnesses all claim Greg talked about hiring a hitman to kill somebody. Are we to assume they all made the story up? Because to me, three different people giving a similar story seems highly suspicious and doesn't look good for Greg. Rabia? Yes. Um, <laughs> yes, that it doesn't look good for Greg. <laughs> it looks really, really bad for Greg. It's going to look even worse at trial, and that's why he's in prison. Hmm. I'm just going to leave it at that. Okay, so are we going to learn more about that later? We're going we're to learn a lot more about that, okay, yeah. Okay, good, because yeah. this yeah. is a question that uh, Lisa asked and that a listener on uh, the Crime Writers On page also asked, and I'll just use Lisa's for the, the placeholder question here. Um, Lisa Brown says, this is the first season in which I seriously doubt the defendant's innocence. I have to trust that you will reveal something exculpatory. For now, it seems like there were legitimate reasons to suspect Greg. How is it that he can't recall what he was doing driving around in the red car that afternoon? It wasn't like he was asked about it months later. Between that and the storage unit, this week left me doubting him. So, yeah. Rabia, you know stuff we don't know. I'm trusting you, right? Well, there's that, but also there is there is this. It's interesting that she said, how come he doesn't know what he did? And people said that. I don't know why I keep making these analogies. Said, people said, but none, but none of that, that's not true at all. Greg knew exactly what he did that afternoon. And I we really literally almost read the notes in the episode where Greg is giving a chronology of exactly what he did. He said uh, at 1030, he left the National Guard, went to the picnic. Around 12, 1230, he left the picnic and came home. And he's telling us exactly, he's telling his attorney exactly what he did. Uh, it's written out by hand that, you know, the attorney has spoken to the defendant and this is like, it's a chronology. Greg is not saying, I don't know. Greg knows exactly what he did. Um, nowhere in there does Greg say, I stopped off at Mike Heron's farm, shot some shit up, left some gas cans there. Like that doesn't happen. Why did he have Dave's car? Is there a reason why they switched cars? Yeah. I mean, I, maybe you don't remember, but, uh, in those notes, it says that, you know, um, Dave and Eric to move. So oh. Eric, Eric had to move some of his, he had stuff. Yeah. at somewhere else in another town and he was going to because he was moving into Greg's place right and he had to go pick it up so he had asked Greg for the truck so that's why they switched cars that day right totally like totally reasonable and they're, he's moving to where Greg is so they're going to be able to switch back very easily like it's a very easy thing to yeah Greg had a little trailer and that's what happened that they came back at the trailers full of stuff and in the evening Greg was still at the the park when they arrived around 5 5 30 and then they unloaded the unloaded the truck Toby, do you have any questions for Rabia about what you've heard so far in this series? I guess not really, other than I, I kind of echo that question that just came up, which is that as opposed to some other, you know, podcasts and, and cases where it's just like, I feel like, oh, my God, how could this possibly have happened? This seems less so. And, and I think it does kind of come down to, in some ways, 
the idea once you identify somebody and you say, I think he did it or she did it. And then you start looking at all the things that person did sort of immediately before and immediately after and start drawing conclusions about those things that aren't necessarily inherent in what they were doing, that that's where things become kind of a problem. And it seems like he was sort of like unusually, he just had like a lot of stuff going on um, that I think you, if you looked at it through that lens of he's guilty, there's a lot of stuff that makes him, that would sort of confirm that suspicion. And again, I sort of just kind of trust that as we go along, like, you know, it's, it's obviously there's not overwhelming evidence that he did it, but it seems less clear than in some cases that he definitely did not do it. But I'm just sort of trusting that as as time goes on on this, there'll be more. Yeah. You know, it's interesting to hear people's reactions in terms of what they think is actual evidence of somebody's guilt. Right. So. He definitely had the red car that afternoon, um, that day, uh, from at least, I guess, noon on when they switched cars after they were after they left the picnic. But who cares? I mean, what is the connection between the red car and the murder? I mean, the actual murder. Well, here's my question. (laughs) Yeah. What's the what's the connection between what happened on August 2nd at the Heron Farm and the do we know any of that's connected? Do we know those gas cans are connected? Do we know the red car? That's the problem is that we are filling in all kinds of blanks uh, in the story that is exactly what the state would want the jury to do. And then they did. This is not a situation where there's video of a red car sitting outside of the burning house. And that red car looks a lot like Dave Anderson's car that we know Greg was driving. It's not, it doesn't, that's not the story. It's just, it felt very tenuous. But that can't be, if that was what you needed to have to get convictions, like you'd never convict anybody. Mm. Right. So you've got to, I mean, I think to get any kind of convictions, unless you actually capture it on film, you know, you've got to make these connections. Well, take take the film part out of it. The red car is not connected necessarily to the murders at all. Right. But that's not, you know, I, I think what the prosecution is doing is trying to build a whole bunch of different factors. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think the thing is, is that none of this stuff is like is like putting him in that house with a gun or putting him giving money to somebody who goes into that house with a gun. But it's just like, you know, it's the classic kind of circumstantial stuff. It's just like you keep piling stuff on. You're like, well, he had this, you know, business dispute and, you know, he had access to this place where some of the stuff that was, you know, maybe it wasn't that exact stuff, but we're implying that it was that exact stuff was used like the gas in burning down the house afterwards. It's like like none of these things in and of themselves necessarily point towards guilt. But it seems like their strategy is just you just keep piling things on. And then it's like, is it really credible that all these things are just coincidences? Hmm. Um, no. Is it, is it, <laughs> and, and, and so and I mean, I think that's how you make the, the case if you don't have like that direct evidence pointing to that person at that place at that time doing that thing. Right. Well, let me ask and, you about this. I'm curious. The bulk of the case Really, I mean, there's a couple of uh, maybe one more piece of evidence that the that the state will present at trial, but the bulk of the case has kind of been presented to you guys as listeners. You've got the witness statements, um, you've got the Heron Farm stuff, the red car. That's the bulk of the case. And would you convict somebody on that basis? 
I think the hitman witnesses statements is the most uh, incriminating part. Damning, of this. yeah. I yeah. don't think that the the farm to me is just out. Like to me, that's like there's no proof he was there doing anything. Uh, it's not like his fingerprints were on the gas cans. Gas cans are an incredibly common thing to have on a rural property, especially where stuff is being burned all the time or where there are machines that need to be gassed up. The red car is not particularly connected to the murders, so, like, who cares? Uh, him leaving the state, we know that was planned in advance of the murders. Um, it's mostly the witness stuff, people saying that Greg talked about hiring a hitman to kill someone. Mm-hmm. That's that's damning, and I, I'm, yeah. I'm looking forward to hearing more about that because that's the only thing. I mean, the marriage, too, is just a little odd, but given everything else I've heard about this guy and his relationships, is it more odd than other things that have happened in his personal life? I'm not certain that it is. I don't know. What do you think, Toby? Yeah, I mean, I think if I was on a jury, I, I think reasonable doubt, like, definitely is, I mean, there's enough there. Like, I mean, just because it's not, you know, it hasn't been, you know, I don't, I don't even know if, like, in a civil suit, whether it seemed more likely than not that it would pass it, but it doesn't seem right now that it's just like such an obvious case, right? It doesn't seem like the kind of thing where you'd go in and people would be like, come on, seriously? Like we just wasted our time on this? Like it, it does seem like there's stuff to think about. Um, that being said, again, I mean, I think I would have a hard time in good conscience sending somebody to prison for a long time based on what we've heard. Um, again, because the, it's it's a bunch of stuff sort of on the margins on the margins. Yeah. Well, I'll say this. Um, I, I mean, I know like because I'm going chronologically in the case and I also want to show that, you know, where the listeners are, are probably kind of like where the jury would be in this. We're like, this is all looking really, really bad right now. You haven't given me anything exculpatory and there will be some exculpatory stuff that is presented at trial, but not nearly enough. Mm. Um, but also I, it'll be interesting for me to hear the listener reaction when, the rest of the story comes out and it makes people think, oh, crap, <laughs> I thought all these things from, you know, the information I was already given and how and, and that's just how wrongful convictions happen. Right. Because there is a whole chunk of the, these stories that's not being heard or not known at all. Um, but you guys, you have to hang in there. It'll you, you got to hang in there till the end of the season. I'll just put it that way. <laughs> Well, we will. I don't have a choice, by the way, because I'm hosting. You don't have Dennis. a choice. <laughs> yeah. Damn it. Sorry, Rebecca. No, I will absolutely hang in there. And um, uh, can I just say one last thing before we wrap it up? Rabia, I mean, you sure. made you made the comment last week that every episode of the addendum so far, I have said uh, if Kevin turned up murdered, my husband, Kevin, uh, all the mm-hmm. ways that I could look guilty. I'm pretty sure that Toby would be called in to be one of those witnesses. <laughs> Who can point to some interaction that he's heard us have that makes me look super guilty? Toby, can you can you confirm that? Yeah, I'd probably be, but I'd have your back, Rebecca. <laughs> well, Rebecca, here's the thing: as long as you don't do it in a way that one of Toby's protagonists did it in his books, um, because then then Toby would be charged also as yes. a co-defendant, and don't you know, give her we'd, any ideas. We'd get, we'd get into love triangle. Tra- it, it could go really bad. Yeah, it could go awry. Yeah, it really could. Yeah. All right. Well, Rabia, I can't wait to hear what comes next in the series. All that exculpatory stuff that everyone's asking about, I also want to know about. So thank you so much for joining me, and I can't wait to hear what comes next. Thank you. Thanks, guys. And Toby Ball, so wonderful to talk to you in a whole different context. You're a really great addendum guest. I hope you come back on the show at some point. Anytime.
Thanks so much for listening to the Undisclosed Addendum and the Greg Lance series. You can follow the show on social media at Undisclosed Pod, and you can ask questions for future Addendum episodes on Twitter or Facebook. Just use the hashtag UDAddendum. And remember, the sponsors of Undisclosed make it possible for the team to continue doing their work. So please support all the sponsors you hear on the show and on regular episodes of Undisclosed. Our executive producer is the great Methel Telhan with her adorable baby. I finally saw a picture. Oh, my God. So cute. Audio production for the addendum is done by Hannah McCarthy, who's also pretty adorable, by the way. Our theme song is by Patrick Cortez. If you want to hear more of me, check out my true crime and pop culture podcast, Crime Writers On, or listen to These Are Their Stories, the Law and Order and SVU podcast. Special thanks to my partner in crime and life, Kevin Flynn, for picking up some of my work so I could host this series, something that I have always dreamed about doing. Also thanks to Robbie, Susan, and Colin, who continue to make Undisclosed a fulfilling and really fun part of my podcasting work life. On behalf of everyone on the Undisclosed team, thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week. Get a whole new perspective on Ram 1500 and Ram Heavy Duty. Motor Trend's back-to-back truck of the year at the Ram Start Something New sales event. Now during Owner Appreciation Month, financing at $11,250 in total values on the 2019 Ram 1500 Classic Bighorn Crew Cab. Hurry in for great deals during the Ram Start Something New sales event. Financing for well-qualified buyers through Chrysler Capital. Not all buyers will qualify. Package values based on combined value of package items. Residency restrictions apply. Take delivery from dealer stock by 2-3-2020. Hey you, are you ready? Grab your pack, grab your tent, grab your gear. Jump in, we're going on an adventure. In Arizona, there's so much to see, so much to experience. At GCU, adventure is never too far away. Offering over 200 academic programs with a Christian worldview and nestled in the heart of Phoenix, you can earn your degree in fewer than four years and explore everything Arizona has to offer. Find your purpose at GCU. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash azroadtrip.